0: Hi, I'm Haley Brennan, and you're listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Andrew Janiak about Project Fox and Emily Duchatelet.
1: So, I'm Andrew Janiak, and I teach philosophy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina.
0: Uh, And, Andrew, you are, do you want to say the principal investigator, the lead researcher of Project Fox?
1: I'm actually co PI with. Uh, Dr. Liz Milowitz, who is the head of digital scholarship here at Duke, and that's kind of an interesting collaboration because she works in the library system and I'm a faculty member. And so we bring different experts to the project, which has made it a very different project than the one that I had originally envisioned on my own. So uh, as you can imagine, a lot of scholars around the world have some kind of digital presence from just like an individual website to, you know, the website of a lab showing all their research uh, and so on. And when faculty members think about having a digital presence, they tend to be reasonably constricted or restricted in their thinking Um, they're mostly of course thinking about the research and the digital expression of that is often kind of an afterthought in many cases you know they hire someone like an enterprising student to design a nice looking website they don't really think a lot about the the site itself they're focused on the research anyway that that was how i was back a few years ago and then when i was. Starting this project with Liz Millowitz and some of her colleagues in the library, they had a completely different point of view. Their their opinion was that we should put as much time into thinking about the digital aspect of the work as the kind of scholarly work itself. And so the site is completely different than what I would have uh, envisioned. For example, uh, um, philosophers and this is probably going to be analogous to other scholars in other disciplines, uh, do not really think a lot about visual culture, at least the philosophers I know. So if we make a website about, you know, Immanuel Kant or something, we might think, hey, maybe we should have a portrait of Kant. Or, you know, maybe we'll throw up a picture of Konigsberg where he famously lived and never left. You know, it's just kind of an afterthought. It's an adornment. It's not an expression of any scholarly interest or work or insight. And the folks here in the libraries had a completely different view. Their view was, well, look, when you have a digital platform, you can do things you can't possibly do in print. You can have lots of very, you know, sophisticated information about visual culture. You can put up, you know, dozens of portraits, for example, whereas... Mm. As scholars, we're used to publishing, and you can only have maybe a few color plates in a book before it becomes too expensive to publish. And so we have a whole aspect of Project Vox that's focused on visual culture in the early modern period, the ways that various figures like Margaret Cavendish, for example, portray themselves visually visually. And the role that that played, and how they were understood in their own time, and then shortly thereafter in the 18th century, etc. None of that would have been part of Project Vox if it had been up to me.
0: (laughs) So, how does this kind of image culture, uh, the specifically digital version of Project Vox, link into the goals that you originally saw the project having?
1: That's a good question. Probably in a few ways. First, one of our goals was just to get a wide range of people interested in the modern period, from students and professors to you know members of the general public or people who might be thinking about going to college or going back to school at some point later in life. And I think portraying them visually Really helps to enrich the story of their lives. It helps to enable readers and users of the site to envision them and their lives, more than just saying, you know, here's an argument they made against Descartes or something like that. So that's one one role it plays. Another role it plays is something that surprised me. And it's it's something like this. It has helped me understand that in the case of canonical figures, we, we sort of take them for granted. We put, you know, Descartes on the syllabus. We don't really think, well, why am I putting Descartes on my syllabus? <laughs> that that question doesn't really arise. As a result, you don't really need to ponder the question, well, how did Descartes become a canonical figure? And when did people first start saying, oh, he's the founder of modern philosophy or something like that? You just put him on a syllabus and you teach him. However, when you are thinking about, you know, Madame de Chatelet or Cavendish or one of these figures, you do inevitably face the question, why am I including her in this class? As soon as you face that question, you start to wonder about their reputation and how it was shaped over time. And I think that visual culture plays an important role in that. So it's no accident, for example, that at least in the early modern period, a lot of the figures we're dealing with were uh, members of royalty or were aristocrats and we're, we're able to have some sort of self-fashioning in the form of frontispieces and fancy title pages and portraits and other things that were important in shaping their reputations. And one of the things that's fascinated me the most is learning that, for example, with Madame Du Chatelet, this is certainly true, some of the figures were actually very well-known in their own day. And so there's a really... Fascinating question. What happened to their reputations after they were alive?
0: So it sounds like part of what it was to to publish and to get your works out, especially as a woman in the early modern period, uh, was this visual culture. Did they often include pictures of themselves or something like that? Or was it uh was it more just designs?
1: Right. Well, some of them did. So Cavendish would include portraits of herself in her frontispieces pieces. And Madame Du Chatelé is an interesting case. She sort of did both. So the first edition of her magnum opus was anonymous, although everybody knew it was by her, you know, but anonymity was of course still an important strategy for various reasons for both men and women. But then in the second edition, it was attributed to her and there was a portrait of her in the frontispiece. And that's quite interesting, I think. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, so that leads into the second question I had, which is like said these women seem to be recognized and least well-known at their time, what do you think happened to their works? <laughs> big question, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big question. Yeah.
1: And I, I will admit, at the outset, I'm not sure, well, I know I don't know the answer in, in great depth. I'm not sure anyone knows the answer completely, which is to say we're still finding out about, and of course, in a way, that's an exciting part of this scholarship, namely that we can uncover things that people really don't know as of now. Well, I know a lot about Madame de Châtelet and a lot less about the others. So I can answer on her, uh, in her case. Yeah, so I actually think that even during her lifetime, a number of people in her circle attempted to sort of manage her status as an intellectual figure in France. And I'm thinking of Voltaire and Mopertuis especially, but I think other figures may have played a role as well. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, it was pretty obvious to everyone who knew her that she was an incredibly unusual person and an unusual woman at that time. It was also obvious that she had um, insights into science and mathematics, especially physics and mathematics that someone like Voltaire never had. I mean, he he freely acknowledged that a number of times. And so people had great respect for her intellect on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think they did a lot of things to undermine her status during her lifetime. What kind so, of things did it? Well, so... For example, I can give a few examples, and Voltaire seems to have played a role in most of these episodes, either behind the scenes or in an upfront fashion. For instance, one of the principal things that happened is people questioned whether she had come up with her philosophical views on her own. And now one has to be careful about this. So one of the figures involved is a, a guy named Samuel Koenig. And uh, he came to – or Koenig. I can't remember if his first name is Samuel or not. Anyway, Koenig. <laughs> he came to visit the famous chateau that uh, Madame du Châtelet and Voltaire set up in uh, the Champagne region of France, which was owned by her family. And this became a kind of center of learning in Europe at this time. He came to visit, and after he had been there, he accused her of plagiarizing some of his philosophical views. So he was a representative of Christian Wolff, who was sort of the most important German philosopher after Leibniz, and who is an interesting figure um, in his own right, who was publishing in both German and Latin. Um, in any case, Koenig it was sort of a follower of Wolff's and he visited Madame de Châtelet and then later claimed that some of her views were really just his ideas, which he had been uh, promoting, having been uh, an admirer of Wolff's philosophy. Okay, now one has to be careful about this because it turns out that Koenig accused Moper tweet of plagiarism later, and apparently this was a standard move on his part. <laughs> okay, so this is where gender plays an interesting role, because I'm sorry, this is an incredibly long-winded answer. No,
0: don't, this is, this is great. Yeah, please continue. All right.
1: I think gender plays an interesting role here, because when Koenig accused someone like Mopertwee of plagiarism, of course, it could be a very serious charge, and it could damage someone's reputation. If it was substantiated, it could be the source of great discomfort, as you can imagine. But someone like Maupertuis had an official status. You know, he was able to be a member of various scientific academies and so on. So it didn't have a devastating impact on him. Yeah. For someone like her, of course, it could have a much more serious impact because she had no official status. She couldn't be a member of the Académie Royale des Sciences in Paris or the Royal Society, etc. And she couldn't even attend certain discussions in cafes in Paris, by the way. There were male-only cafes, and Maupertuis was a famous member of one called the Café Crado in Paris, where she was excluded. So because she couldn't have an official status, this claim of plagiarism had a bigger impact, and it, it definitely damaged her reputation.
0: So even with her status as well-known and publishing philosophical works, she wasn't allowed to participate in the intellectual culture in the same way?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I can tell you more about that. There's an interesting episode where she found a way around that, which is really fascinating and very clever. But before I get there, I'll just say another thing that happened is people were constantly trying to put her into a pre-established gendered slot, Mm -hmm. which is to say she could be put into the position of the sort of educated, learned, intelligent, but subservient figure and to give you an example there's there's some famous cases of male authors who write a text there's actually quite a lot of these examples which is based on a kind of conceit namely the male author explains some complicated view to a female audience yeah sometimes the audience is explicitly a character in the book uh sometimes it's in the title so one of the people who came to visit um Madame de Châtelet also was named uh, Algaradi, Francesco Algaradi, who's an Italian philosopher. And He wrote a book called Newtonianism for the Ladies, believe it or not. <laughs> and He attempted to undermine her by putting her into his text as the audience.
0: Really? So,
1: yeah. Then here's where visual culture really comes in. There's a famous picture in his text where she is depicted. Everyone took it to be a painting of her or a picture of her. And she is sort of receiving the wisdom of the, you know, male philosopher. And this is incredibly ironic because she was one of the great interpreters of Newtonian philosophy in the 18th century. So it was a very underhanded move that he made I could give many more examples but these are just good examples of people trying to undermine her while she was alive
0: yeah Yeah. I mean as you said especially because the way I know Chatelet the most is as a translator and interpreter of Newton so for her to be taught it is kind of shocking
1: yes that's exactly it and there are many other examples of that so for instance Voltaire as I say, he played a role in a lot of this because he was there in the chateau that she owned and he knew all these people and he often corresponded with them. He corresponded with Maupertuis and others and he played this role as well. So here's an example. When he described her work, I think it's in the appended matter to the translation of Newton that was published posthumously that she did, he described her as, you know, a, a I mean, he was always willing to say a great intellect, someone who understood mathematics much better than he did. But he said, she, you know, her great work is this translation of Newton, which is a great accomplishment. And she also wrote a book on the philosophy of Leibniz. But of course, he didn't think very much of that. And this was really a way of undermining her because her magnum opus, whatever it is, is definitely not a book on the philosophy of Leibniz, you know, which makes it sound like it's derivative. And
0: Yeah. Absolutely. You, see, you see what I mean? Some sort of interpretation as opposed to a, a positive contribution to philosophy.
1: Exactly. That's one example. There are many others where people were undermining her. So the Voltaire publication was after her death. These other episodes I mentioned happened during her lifetime. But this all this all sort of indicates that people in her circle really tried to sort of shape her reputation and manage it both during her lifetime and afterwards. In a way, they succeeded. As a result, many people, like you say, think of her as maybe a great intellect and a very unusual person, very interesting, but as someone who mostly was working on the ideas of other people.
0: Well, I mean, it's kind of amazing given all these stories that she did continue to publish, and and as far as I'm aware now, you know, recently have become aware of her more positive philosophical contributions, which I gather you work on quite a bit. How did you come to find de Châtelet as more than just translator of Newton?
1: Well, it's a funny story. I I was working on Kant, and one of the trends in Kant scholarship in the past generation or so has been to focus more on the pre-critical, the so-called pre-critical works, the ones that he wrote before the Critique of Pure Reason in 1780. So I was reading a bunch of his pre-critical works when I was in grad school, and one of them is his very first essay from 1747, which is called roughly Thoughts on the Estimation, the True Estimation of Living Forces. So it was about um, this debate about how to measure forces in the first half of the 18th century. And I'm reading along, and he cites and discusses Madame de Chantelet. And I had a kind of intriguing feminist moment. I was reading it and I thought, you know, come to think of it, that's the first time I've seen a woman referred to, a specific woman, you know, referred to by one of these philosophers I've been spending so much time reading, you know, as opposed to someone pontificating about women or marriage or something or other, which obviously you do see. Here was someone citing a woman. so." I thought, and I had no idea who she was. So, of course, I became incredibly interested and I I started looking into it. And to be honest, I didn't ever work up the courage to write about her or study her while I was a young scholar, while I was a student or a young scholar. I was afraid that and some people kind of warned me about this, to be honest. I was afraid that it wouldn't be taken very seriously reputation. And I just didn't have the courage to write about her. So I never forgot about that, however, and I always thought someday I'll come back to it. The irony, however, is in a way it worked out because my own humble opinion is that it's very hard to understand what's innovative about Madame de Châtelet's Institution, her main work, unless you've really spent a lot of time thinking about Newtonian stuff. That's my own opinion. And I actually think sometimes you can look at the way she was read even in her own uh, lifetime and understand that people didn't quite get what was innovative about her work because they didn't know a lot about Newtonian ideas.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So do you think with someone like Kant inciting her, was he citing her as an authority on Newton as for her own philosophical works?
1: Well, that's a fascinating question because – he did mention her at another time, and his second mention of her years later is more famous in some ways. And I think it's representative of, in many ways, the reactions to her that people had all through the 18th century. In a way, they couldn't really accept her for who she was. They they just couldn't quite accept the idea that there could be a woman who was... Um, making original contributions to science and philosophy. It it kind of exploded their ideas. You know, they just couldn't quite accept it. So here's an example. Kant, on the one hand, he cites her in his first essay as an authority on this important question about how to understand forces. On the other hand, later in the 1760s, in the uh, observations on the sublime and the beautiful, if I remember right, he says this sort of famous thing about her namely he says basically um, she might as well have had a beard <laughs> um and you know he's sort of saying like she's a she's a woman but she has taken up the role of a man and this you know this can't be I mean, you know it's it's a problem we we have we have to do something about this as it were so and that was very common think. Eh?
0: Women and not only are they talking about the things that we canonically find interesting, things like you know causality and they said space and time and forces, uh, but but also we can find new critical thought in them. That's yeah, you know, we can De is thinking and writing critically about the role of women and sex and gender. So, what are her thoughts on that? What I mean, what other things in Chatelet do you find interesting as critical thought?
1: Yeah, so she's a good representative of the view that you shouldn't take a kind of standard opinion about the status of women or women's potential contributions to science and literature and philosophy and accept it without subjecting it to serious questioning and i mean that's very common amongst uh the various women in the early modern period we've been looking at in project vox so they are not going to just accept the you know kind of standard views of their day or their social class, they're going to subject them to scrutiny. They're going to ponder them. They're going to think: Is there any argument for this? Is there any reason to believe this? Is this, you know, a well-established belief? Is there evidence for it? All those the kinds of things you'd expect a philosopher to do. So they really place sex and gender and societal status, et cetera, into the philosophical realm in a way that their male counterparts for the most part don't do. And and if you think about it in a way, Madame de Châtelet is a great example of this. The fact that men like, you know, Voltaire or Mopertui or Algarotti or Koenig, or and there are many others, the fact that they were presented with a philosophical treatise that's incredibly interesting and sophisticated written by a woman somehow didn't pressure them into thinking, "Wait a minute, Maybe my, you know, long held beliefs, my unexamined beliefs about sex and gender are are problematic, you know? Yeah, of course. They actually they didn't do that. They didn't take that step. So I find that, you know, they're very limited in that way. That having been said, Madame de Chatelet for the most part was not thinking about those issues in what we would call feminist philosophy or political philosophy. Um, You know, she was definitely thinking much more about natural philosophy. Yeah. So she wrote a book called Institution de Physique. So people now often translate it foundations of physics. That's a pretty good translation in the sense that it indicates she was interested in fundamental or foundational questions in physics, basic questions that, of course, philosophers are also interested in, like uh, how do we know what we know about the natural world? What kinds of things can we know? Um, when should we have some phenomenon in nature? When should we not support a theory? for example, and I think the most common understanding of her project, you might even call it the standard reading at this point, is something along the following lines: She was both interested in Leibniz's views and Christian Wolff's views about nature and our knowledge of nature, but also Newton and his views about our knowledge of nature. And actually, that's a very common 18th century approach amongst the most sophisticated thinkers. So to give two examples, one would be Euler, the famous uh, Swiss mathematician, and another would be Kant, who even in the critical period was writing about space and time by saying, basically, you've got a Leibnizian view, and you've got a Newtonian view, and you have to somehow think about both of those and maybe overcome the dialectic between them, let's
0: say. And she was doing the same thing.
1: Yeah. And so it it makes a lot of sense to see her as engaged in the same project, uh, actually a little bit earlier than Euler and Kant, namely, how can you kind of merge Leibnizian and Newtonian ideas about nature and our knowledge of nature? And I think you can go pretty far with that reading and it very nicely shows how her work is continuous with the work of people like Euler and Kant and so on. Um, However, I have in the past couple of years come to think that her work is actually in a way even more interesting and original than that suggests. So the way I think of it now is that one can fall into a little bit of a trap, and I know that I used to fall into this trap, if one accepts that standard reading a little too uncritically. And the trap is something like the following. So you say, well, okay, she's interested in the foundations of physics. Well, physics is something that, you know, Newton obviously contributed. And then foundations sounds like it's about epistemological questions or metaphysical questions. And that's something, of course, Leibniz contributed a lot to, but Newton, not very much. So it's actually rather common to think, aha, she must be providing as it were Leibnizian foundations for Newtonian physics. Yes. And then you can, that's very interesting by the way. And you can really spend a lot of time trying to figure out well how would that work? Uh uh-huh. one reason it might work is that according to a lot of interpreters, Newton doesn't really develop many metaphysical views and so he's got, you know, things to say about the force of gravity or the motion of objects, the laws of motion, but he doesn't have much to say about basic metaphysical or epistemological questions. And of course Leibniz has a great deal to say about all of that. And, you know, you can think through how that might work. However, I think it's a little bit of a trap because in the end, I think it it assumes that the physics she's dealing with and then the kind of metaphysics or philosophy she's dealing with are inherent people and also are sort of static. And the only question is, well how do you take these two things that don't seem to fit together, that Leibniz and Newton didn't seem to think would fit together, by the way, and somehow, you know, merge them into one coherent whole. I mean, that is a very profound project. And many philosophers, like I said, did work on that project. But I have come to think she didn't quite see things that way. In fact, she wanted to do something in a way that's a little more subtle, and to me, a little more interesting. So I'll just give an example. I think she thought that The physics and the metaphysics, just to speak loosely, were not quite static as that standard reading suggests, but in fact were sort of interrelated in an interesting way and more fluid. So here's the example. Um, One of the most important things that happens in Newton's Principia is the following. He says, all bodies gravitate toward one another and uh, through the force of gravity, and this is in proportion to their quantity of matter, to their mass. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people were wondering, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> so it wasn't just that this was controversial okay. and that a lot of philosophers in Europe were not really sure about this idea and people were concerned about action at distance and so on. It was also true that people were just wondering, what exactly does it mean? Yeah. Leaving aside whether it's true, what does it mean? And in particular, they were wondering, is Newton really saying that matter as such gravitates? that as it were part of the essence of matter is to gravitate some people thought so okay. however newton himself very famously in the second edition of the principia in 1713 so now we're in you know the beginning of the 18th century claimed he wasn't saying that gravity is essential to matter however what he said was incredibly confusing <laughs> <laughs> why are you saying you're not saying it's essential to matter we we don't really know yeah. in particular And this is a very important point, according to me anyway. Newton never said what he thought the essence of something is. He just simply said, I'm not claiming that gravity is essential to matter. But we had no idea what he meant by essential to matter for anything. Like what about extension or mobility or impenetrability, you know. What would it mean for something to be essential? So Madame de Chatelet knew about this, and she knew this was incredibly important. And in particular, she knew that one of the greatest questions for Newtonians in the first half of the 18th century was, you know, what does Newton's theory of universal gravity tell us about the natural world? Does it tell us that matter as such gravitates? Or does it tell us that matter in our world happens to gravitate, but if our world were different, it wouldn't gravitate? does it tell us there is no medium for gravity like an ether or something else or or can we believe in an ether even given what Newton says in his theory etc so here's what she does in in the Institution, she writes a chapter on essences and tells you what it means to say something is essential to a body and then as the text proceeds you realize she will then say why we shouldn't say that gravity is essential to matter. In particular, why Newton does not have enough evidence, these kinds of possibilities, that would mean that gravity is not essential to matter, but rather just, as it were, an accidental feature. Oh, I think this tells us that she is, as it were, doing a more philosophically rigorous presentation of a view of nature than you find in newton it, in in really, what it's doing is it's saying, uh, we need to be philosophically rigorous in this way if we're even going to know what we're talking about when we do physics, as it were, because leaving aside all the controversies about Newton and the theory of gravity, I actually think that even for some of his most committed supporters and defenders, there's a real question of what he was saying. <laughs> You know, there was a real question. Well, what does it mean to say all bodies gravitate? <laughs> you know, this is this is not an easy thing to understand. Madame de Chatelet, I think, provides a kind of systematic way of being clear in physics about you know this most important force, namely gravity.
0: So it really sounds like she did a really important role in clarifying what sounds like is a deep and unanswered question in the period. I think so. So just to try it full circle, for Chatelet in particular, do you have suggestions on, on how to integrate her work on the foundations of physics into philosophy courses and philosophy study into both discussions of Newton and discussions of Chatelet as as philosopher?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's many ways of doing it. I'll just give a few examples. So one way start with something like the leibniz Clark correspondence, which a lot of people teach anyway. And that sets things up beautifully because you get a number of issues on the table that are very important to her uh, about space and time and matter and motion, uh, the principle of sufficient reason, and so on. And in particular, I think what you see is Leibniz is, of course, using the PSR to criticize Newtonian ideas. And Clark is really trying to show how you can interpret the PSR in a way that is consistent with Newtonian ideas. Once you have that on the table, Madame de Châtelet's views in the Foundations of Physics can be understood very readily because, first of all, she discusses space and time and motion and cites the, the Leibniz-Clerk correspondence. But second of all, she shows you how there are a number of issues that have to be discussed in a lot more depth uh, that aren't settled by that correspondence. And I think my own opinion is she's a more sophisticated interpreter of Newton than Clark is, even though she never took up his kind of position as a defender of Newton. Uh, So that's one way to get into her views. Another way is kind of – so that's kind of the moving forward through history approach. Another way is almost to go backwards. So if someone is teaching – or interested in the second half of the 18th century, Uh, for example, if someone's working on Kantian stuff, I think she, she really fits in very nicely. You can have her as a kind of Uh, precursor to Kant as someone who, even if she isn't providing a Leibnizian foundation for Newtonian physics, nonetheless is thinking very deeply about issues that Leibniz and Clark and Newton are all debating. And uh, you can read her first and then see how her views are similar to or differ from Kant's views. And by the way, you could do that both for pre-critical Kant if if someone was teaching that or interested in it, or critical Kant for the um critique of pure reason. And I have a kind of oddball opinion about that. <laughs> um, so, you know, you have the prefaces and the introduction to the critique, and then the first arguments in the transcendental aesthetic where Leibniz and Newton are very important. And you could teach that in relation to what she says about, for example, space and time. But also there's this little known, or I think anyway, neglected aspect of the of the first critique called the amphiboly. My favorite part of the critique, which is where Kant... It's kind of an appendix where Kant talks about Leibniz and Wolf, what he calls the Leibniz-Wolf philosophy, in a lot of depth, almost not from a critical point of view, but just from a kind of – well, it is from a critical point of view. But it, it's, a, it's a much more general discussion where he says in, I think, very pithy ways how Leibniz and Wolf think about basic metaphysical issues like identity and difference, for example – and how a critical philosopher needs to think about them differently. Anyway, that that kind of very clear discussion of with Madame du Châtelet's discussions of some of the very same things, because she's very interested in the arguments in favor of monads, or what she calls simple beings, for example, and Kant talks about those in some depth.
0: Yeah, this really rich connection with Kantian ideas. I know the amphibly is getting getting a lot of attention lately. So Oh, really? I think so. Oh, okay. In the metaphysical Kantian readings.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is because there is this idea that Kant thought if we could have knowledge of things in themselves, whatever that means, you know, Leibniz's philosophy would be true or something. You know, some people kind of think he he sort of thought that was the 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 right metaphysics except it turns out human beings can't know it you know. Yeah. That's quite intriguing to me because I think that could be paired with a discussion of her views of what we can know in metaphysics. Yeah, I think it'd be a very fruitful conversation to just think that through.
0: Absolutely. It sounds it's incredibly interesting. I want to stay here and <laughs> and learn more. Yeah. <laughs> just have you, have you talked to me about Sheldley?
1: Can I say one other thing? Is that
0: yes, of course. Please,
1: because I've thought a little bit about how to teach her in a more general way, uh-huh. and and I think that she could be taught in a in some kind of course that was aimed at a much more general audience. That's about the Enlightenment, and here's the kind of basic idea. So there's a very standard story, which I think is mostly due to Voltaire, according to which you know in in the kind of British stream of Enlightenment thinking, let's call it that, Newton provides knowledge of the natural world and Locke provides the kind of politics and philosophy and theology maybe. Certainly the philosophy and the epistemology that's missing from Newton. And Voltaire seems very enamored of this idea. And Ironically, I think Voltaire adopts Clark's view of a lot of philosophical uh, issues, but is promoting Locke for sure. So this is, of course, to be part of a lot of courses on the Enlightenment, whether in philosophy or history or who knows. And I think Madame Châtelet provides a very intriguing counterbalance to that notion where she is very critical of Locke's ideas. And in my opinion, she – now, this is just my opinion, and and obviously – other people might be outraged by this. Idea, but uh, <laughs> In my opinion, she understands that Locke's grasp of Newtonian views of nature is very thin. I tend to think that this is very clear in the correspondence with Stillingfleet, with Bishop uh, Stillingfleet, where Locke says a number of things about the super addition of gravity, for example, to matter, which are very confusing and maybe confused. Uh, anyway, Voltaire of course is in no position to understand the nuances of what Newton is doing, but Madame de Chatelet is. So she has a kind of very different take on the issue where um this sort of Locke Newton synthesis or something in Enlightenment thinking is questioned very significantly. Yeah. So there's I think a number of things that would interest a a much wider audience there and sort of thinking about how did the Enlightenment evolve? How did views of certain important figures in the Enlightenment come to pass? I think Voltaire's role is very important, but she's presenting a much more, in my opinion, sophisticated understanding of the new science and what it means for, you know, broader topics in society.
0: Yeah, absolutely. She had a a greater handle on on what was going on, it sounds like, than than Voltaire or even Locke. Yeah. Anyone agrees, but... Okay. Well to to wrap up, do you have any last thoughts to add on both your Chatelet and the integration of female philosophers in the early modern period?
1: Yeah. Well I think it's a very exciting moment in history, not to be too grandiose. But <laughs> because I I really do think we are still in the early stages of our understanding of the early modern period as far as the contributions of women are concerned. I think you know we've learned a huge amount from some scholars about certain figures in the last generation or so. But one thing we we realize, even with a very well known figure like Madame de Chatelet, is that there's still a tremendous amount of information that um, is sort of lying there in the historical record and the archives, in attics somewhere and in, in basements. And because we're not dealing with canonical figures, scholars haven't poured through everything yet the way they have for someone like Descartes or Kant. And so there's a lot more to be discovered. And I think that's incredibly exciting because a graduate. Student working on one of these figures can actually go out and discover something that nobody knows, or in some ways more intriguingly, nobody in our century knows, but maybe it was known in the past. Yeah, yeah. I'll just give one example. So everybody, for many generations, who studies the Enlightenment has been reading the encyclopedia of Diderot and D'Alembert, and you know the encyclopedia has been studied ad infinitum, and yet mm-hmm. until the 21st century, as far as I know, nobody knew that new. Numerous articles in the encyclopedia were copied from Madame du Châtelet's Institut. And scholars have now discovered that that's true. They have done a very sophisticated analysis of the encyclopedia and have found these long passages copied from her work. So there's one example where there's something kind of sitting right under our noses, but we don't know about it until, you know, scholars go out and do their detective work. Yeah, my suspicion is the more we go out and look, the more we will find and we will see that some of these figures were actually very influential in the early modern period. And it's only later that people sort of forgot about them. So it's sort of our duty to try to revive them and to see what's out there in the in the record.
0: Well, this discussion, I think, gives us lots of reason to uh, to take that step. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, it's my pleasure. (laughs) Really, really interesting. Thanks for calling me. Thank you for listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. The New Narratives project and podcast are funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. In the spirit of the project, the music for the podcast is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D Major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armoniche. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net and follow us on Facebook. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.